Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This evening we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 2. Last time we looked at the introduction to the book of 1 Kings and Solomon's inauguration as king, really due to Adonijah's attempted coup. And tonight the title is Testing the New King, or The New King is Tested. And you know, it's true in any leadership position, so you know, it's something to really consider. We can't just look at this as something that was written roughly 3,000 years ago. We have to look at it to how really it could apply to our lives as well. It's amazing how the Bible just really comes alive in that respect. But any new leader is tested. You know, if you get a promotion at work, the subordinates that used to hang out with you and you their buds, they'll test you. They want to see if you're, you know, a company person, so to speak, if you'll discipline them. Uh, so in, in any form of leadership, and I'll go through various instances, people will be tested. So who is this person? Let's see what they're made of. And tested leadership is good leadership. You know, just handing something to a person who's never been a leader in their life, usually, unfortunately, they practice on those that they're leading over, and it doesn't always go very well. So let's check this out in verse 1. 1 Kings 2, verse 1. David's charge to Solomon. Then the days of David drew near that he should die. And he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn that the Lord may fulfill his word which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons take heed to their way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, he said, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So David knows that his death, he, he's an older man, he has problems keeping warm, Abishag is there for that. Uh, you know, he's the king, but he's, his health is failing, and he knows that his time is coming. To his, for his body to go the way of all the earth, and of course, um, as a man of God, that he would be with the Lord after the Lord Jesus died and rose again and died for his sins. So David's going to die, and he can't help Solomon anymore. He says, be strong and prove yourself a man. The, Solomon was about 19, 20 years old at this time. He was a young man. And all of a sudden, he's a leader. He's the king. And he has to make this transition into leadership. He has to be strong. The nation needed him. It was no time for weak leadership. You know, I, I think of the United States, the type of country we are, uh, such a powerful military, nuclear weapons. We need strong leadership. In the church, we need strong leadership. There's a lot of things that are in society that are assaulting what we believe in. And how do we stand up to that to be loving but yet firm at the same time? So leadership is important. He says the most important thing really is to live as a godly man, to live in all the Lord's ways. And Solomon, you're resulting, and I'm paraphrasing, your resulting obedience will cause you to prosper in all you do and wherever you turn. This still tro holds true today, doesn't it? 
Now, with the advent of the New Testament, some a thousand years after this point, and the teachings of Christ and the apostles under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it's not just in the monarchy. What do we instill in our children? I know what my prayers are for my son. He's not even a king, although he was named after one of my favorite kings. But I tell you, what I want for my son is him to be a man of God. I don't really care how many figures he makes. I don't care how much money he brings in. I hope he has a double portion of anything that I've ever had. I'd love to sit back and just see him be on fire for God. That's my desire. You know, and we have to really consider that as Christians, whether our kids or grandkids, and sometimes even when we have grandkids and, you know, there's an issue with one or two parents that aren't saved, we keep praying for those kids. We keep praying for those kids and just try to be that light to them, you know, that, that living Bible. So this is so important. Verse 4, he says that, David says that God promised him that if the successive kings would walk in his ways, they would never, a man would never be lacking on the throne of Israel. But sadly, that's not what happened. As a matter of fact, after Solomon, it was Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and the kingdom was divided. Now, the kingdom was divided from the inside, and then it was conquered from the outside. And we can make so many applications for that. Amen? Even as Christians in the Christian community, sometimes we're our own worst problems. We, we allow the division to come from the inside. And then it's easy for the attacks to come from the outside because we're weak. Now, this is important because God makes conditional promises and unalterable promises. And unalterable promises, God says, this is going to happen. No matter what your behavior is, no matter what the situation, this is going to take place. And then there's conditional promises which is really a privilege of a good relationship with God. You know, God was going to bless their crops and bless their livestock and enlarge their borders, and, but they, they couldn't go after false gods. And then if they went after false gods and they started worshiping to pagan idols and in pagan temples, that the Lord was going to withdraw those blessings. And it, it only makes sense. Why should God bless a people that don't care about him and don't want him? Then why, why bother asking for his blessings? I want to read to you Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 16. It's the law of the administration of the king. It says, But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, You shall not return that way again. In addition, uh, God did not want men to rely on the horses or the chariots or the strength of his army or the numbers of his army God wanted his kings to rely on him. Verse 17, neither shall he multiply wives. You know, people say, well, in the Bible they had, this is amazing, the polygamists who claim to be Christian. Well, in the Bible they had multiple wives. Yeah, but God said, don't do it. In the Bible they killed people. The Bible recorded fallible humans throughout history. But this was his law, don't do this, right? So don't multiply wives for, for himself, lest he turn his heart away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priest, the Levite. So every king was supposed to have a duplicate copy of the law that the priest had. That's impressive. I guess there's no separation of church and state here, right? Times have changed. And it shall be with him that he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren. That's amazing too, isn't it? 
You're the king, you're supposed to lead them, but, but it's not that you're, you're to look down on your subjects. You're, they're supposed to be your sheep. I mean, this is really great scripture for any politician even today. This is powerful. That he may not turn aside from the commandments of the right hand or the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. That's powerful. So the king was supposed to have his own scroll, his own copy of the law, and he was supposed to read it on a daily basis. Verse 5. It says, Moreover you know also what Joab the son of Zeruiah did to me, and what he did to two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner the son of Ner, and Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed. And he shed the blood of war in peacetime, and put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist, and on his sandals that were on his feet. Therefore do according to your wisdom, and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For so they came to me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And see, you have with you Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite from Behurim, who cursed me with a malicious curse in the day I went to Manahem. And he came down to meet me at the Jordan, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now therefore do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man, and know what you ought to do to him, but bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. So David now is giving secondary advice. Anything has to be secondary if the advice of the Lord is first, is primary. That's important. So we just covered this. Um, David is directing Solomon to three men. Two are bad and one is good. It's almost like, listen, know your assets and your liabilities. Anybody coming into leadership, you know, whether it's a takeover of a, a major corporation. I remember that, that CEO of, of GM, I think she's still in it. Poor lady, she came in and they had this big blunder with the ignition switches and all these recalls and, and these former CEOs just left. And they left her and then she had a report before Congress. Can't remember her name, but um, you've got to give the woman credit. Uh, but you've got to know your assets and your liabilities when you come into leadership, no matter what that is. You have to learn the system. You need to understand it. So let's look at these three. Number one, Joab. Okay, here's a man who got, he get the job done. But he did it at the cost of disobedience, ungodliness, and with selfish heart motives. David says he shed innocent blood. So we remember he killed Amasa and he killed Abner. He also killed Absalom, although Absalom wasn't really innocent. Remember, Absalom was caught by that tree and he was hanging, and David said, bring him back alive, but he decided to have him killed. He also killed Uriah indirectly. All right? So here's somebody that uh, he was complicit with David when David sinned with Bathsheba and you know, take out his husband, and Joab was a part of that as well. If you think about it, if Adonijah would have succeeded, succeeded with Joab as his general, a lot more bloodshed would have happened. And this is the thing about Joab's. You see, Joab's can do two things, and two of these things happen with David. A Joab can invent, you know, what is a Joab? Joab is somebody that, or a relationship or something we may rely on as a crutch instead of relying on as God. So Joab really, he was a get or done type of guy. Whatever you asked him to do, he got it done. So Joab's either do, do one or two things. Number one, they will turn on us with David, that happened. Or number two, God may not fully bless something because we're, we're relying on Joab. And I believe that might have happened too. If David would have dealt with him earlier, things might have been different. So both of those things happened to David. 
The second person we see is Barzillai. Love that name. When King David was on the run, running from his own son, Absalom, uh, Barzillai helped him out. He refreshed him, right? And Barzillai, David, when he was reinstated, wanted him to come to Jerusalem. He says, listen, I'm an, I'm an old man. I just want to die in my hometown. But here, Chimham is my son. Take care of him. So David did. The third person that us, uh, David tells Solomon about is Shimei, who was a Benjamite, which was a relative of Saul, and he just may not have recognized anybody who wasn't from Saul's line. He was pro-Saul. This guy was uh, really after the flesh, this Shimei character. Everybody knew that David was anointed by God, but, but Shimei, you know, he, he wasn't going to have any of David. And there's just going to be some people that just don't like you for whatever reason. You know, they don't like your family, they don't like your parents, they don't like the neighborhood you come from, they don't like your, your appearance. There's just something they don't like about you. And Shimei just looked for an opportunity to curse David. Sadly, sadly, these rebellious actions of a few in testing the new king cause needless bloodshed. Sometimes stepping into leadership can become a real reality check. You know, Solomon didn't get to live his young adult life maybe a little bit more carefree like he would have liked to. He had no choice but to step into this leadership position. And there was a lot of harsh realities that came with that. And everyone receives the fruits of their lives in the end, whether good or bad. The question is, which one of these three, and it's an easy one, out of the three that we spoke about, which one of the three would we want to be known or similar to? So the first one is Joab. It appears he's serving, but he's for himself. His selfish ambition is cloaked by his supposedly doing God's will. The second person is a Shimei who gives the appearance he's on God's side, but only uses it as a cloak for his harsh criticism. You know, we've all met somebody that are just, the person is just a critical spirit. Everything, you know, whether it's their church or their job or their family, they just always, you know, reminds me of the two Muppets in the balcony. Uh, in the Muppet Show, you know, they just were constantly criticizing, but they never wanted to be a part of the solution. So to, this is this is Shimei to me. The, the third person is Barzillai. He was the only genuine one in the group. Here was a man who rose to the occasion to help leadership when it wasn't popular and when it wasn't easy. Now that's fascinating because what another thing is that Barzillai wasn't looking for a title. When David was reinstated. He could have got anything he wanted from the king. He could have got a nice villa in uh, Jerusalem or, you know, by the water somewhere, and he just chose to live out the rest of his days in his hometown and let his son be blessed. But here's a guy who didn't want anything for serving the Lord and for refreshing the Lord's anointed. Um, and that, today that's hard to find, you know, somebody that's just selfless and there's really no motive. Uh, verse 10. David dies. So David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. The period that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years. Then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. So David finally dies, and what's the legacy he left? Well, one thing that stands out to me is the Bible says, God says, that David is a man after my own heart. What is the legacy that we'll leave? You know, what is, 
What is uh, Joe known as? What is you know Rose known as? What is Lloyd known as? When we go home, or when we drive home, let's let's ask a serious question: How do people know me? What, what's going to stand out after I die? What's going to be my legacy? Well, I listen. David, when he sinned, he sinned big. You know, he 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 hit the the, the <laughs> what everybody would consider the top sins. But he knew how to repent. He knew how to fall on his face, and he knew how to accept the discipline. For those sins, he really wanted what was right in God's eyes. He let things get the better of him. You know, he is a, he's a picture of a, a fallible person. Right? And I think we can all see some of ourselves in David to some extent. David was a great man. And there was a lot of other great men and women, too, that were not quite out front as David. I love Jonathan, the story of Jonathan. And he's just an awesome character. He's an awesome guy. But David really stands out. Verse 13, now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and she said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. Moreover, he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, say it. Then he said, you know that the kingdom was mine and all Israel had set their expectations on me that I should reign. However, the kingdom has been turned over and has become my brother's for it was his from the Lord. Now I ask one petition of you, do not deny me. And she said, say it. Then he said, please speak to the king, Solomon, and he will not refuse you, that he may give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. So Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak for you to the king. This is a very strange conversation. I'm going to do a lot of paraphrasing tonight. (laughs) So very, very strange conversation. Here's my paraphrase. You know, Bathsheba, the kingdom was mine. And all Israel was behind me, but because of God, it had to be turned over to my little brother Solomon. Here's two, two points here. Number one, this is the type of rebellion that almost got him killed. Right? In, in mercy, um, he wasn't killed. You would think that he would not want to bring that up again, but he does in great detail. The second thing is, did he really want to be in a position to oppose God? Some people are that stubborn. They're always pushing for themselves. You know, Adonijah was either not that bright or completely self-deceived, and I believe he really believed what he was saying. Now, here's the thing about uh, Abishag. Now, remember, Abishag was somebody that was really David's caretaker. She kept him warm. There was nothing sexual. There was no marriage. But if the people understood the last person or female with David was Abishag. So really, this had significance. Because if he now gets Abishag as his wife, it could give the appearance to the people that this must have been David's will, and he gives this woman now to be with Adonijah. So there could have been a future claim on the kingdom as a result of it. Remember what Absalom did when David fled Jerusalem. He went into uh, David's concubines for all Israel to see, and that was a sign back then that I'm the new king. Okay, so this is... You know, it gets, it gets murky from here. But Adonijah's not anointed, Solomon was. And this is what the unanointed do. They try to use accouterments, they try to use surroundings to make themselves look like they're something when they don't have God's anointing. Remember, both Adonijah and Absalom, remember they had the young men run in front of them and there was a lot of fanfare and this was their way to get the people thinking, well, they're special people. They weren't anointed, but they did these extraneous external things to give that appearance. 
And the reason why I have to tell you that is because some, you know, this is where the, the uh, executions start. Now, it's quite, quite possible that Joab and Abiathar gave Adonijah this advice. Um, both of them were seasoned. Adonijah wasn't really seasoned, but it, listen, this, was good. this could have started the second coup. Now, some don't understand force at times to keep peace. Uh, and a lot of times back then, uh, you know, we look at coups today. We remember, I mean, we're all old enough to know a few years ago, obviously, it was the, the so-called Arab Spring with all those countries in North Africa with those coups. They, they deposed Gaddafi, they, exposed, they uh, deposed the other leaders, and there's a lot of bloodshed. And then people don't like them, and they deposed them. It went back in Egypt like three times already. Now it's back to General Assisi is in charge. But there's always bloodshed when these things happen. Um, so oftentimes stopping the coup can actually thwart that, that bloodshed. And, and, and Adam, um, Solomon must have felt, I can't have another coup hanging over my head. I've got to deal with this. So here's where the executions start. Now, in 2 Samuel 12, 5 through 6, if you remember when Nathan comes to David and gives him this fictitious account of a rich man who had plenty of sheep stealing a poor man's lamb, uh, David is furious, doesn't know it's about him yet, and he says, that man will pay fourfold. Well, guess what? With the murder, with the, excuse me, execution of Adonijah, David and Bathsheba's baby died, the first one. Amnon died, Absalom died, and for Adonijah, that's fourfold. So it's almost by David's own words, this came to pass. And David found out later that it was about him. Verse 19. Bathsheba there went, went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah. And the king rose up to meet her and bowed to her and sat on the, on the throne and had a throne set for the king's mother. So she sat at his right hand. Then she said, I desire one small petition of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, ask it, my mother, for I will not refuse you. So she said, let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, his wife. Maybe she didn't realize the implications of this. And King Solomon answered and said to his mother, Now why do you ask for Abishag, the Shunammite, for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my older brother for him, and for Abiathar the priest, and Joab the son of Zeroiah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, May God do so to me and more, also if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and set me on the throne of David my father, and who has made me a house, as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent by the hand of Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down and he died. So Solomon, he bows down really as a sign of respect to his mother. And here's, you know, we could pass this up, but he had a throne set up for mom. <laughs> you know, I mean, Solomon didn't seem like a weak guy. He didn't agree with his mother's counsel. But he honors his mother over and above. I wonder if maybe she was the only one that he could trust with all the things that were going on, right? <laughs> and, you know, leadership can be a very lonely place. You wonder why people seem to like you or seem to flatter you. Who loves me for me? Who pretends to love me for what I can do for them? So it does seem like Solomon had very few in his inner circle. One of them was mom. And I'm going to say this, that at times it's better to be lonely than to be in relationships where we compromise. 
Solomon didn't have a huge pool of friends, a, a huge pool of people that he could trust, uh, but he did have his mom and he did have a few others. Again, it's better to be lonely than to compromise with relationships that will bring us down. So, when I talk about leadership, obviously here we're talking about a monarch, a king. We could be talking about somebody in government. We can be talking about somebody who's a, bin- a, a business owner. Be speaking about somebody who's in ministry, a manager, or other leader or authority figure, even a parent who maybe is sitting on a, a large inheritance, has several kids, and uh, maybe there's not a lot of love in that relationship, but they're wondering if some of them are trying to get close to them because they're looking for the payout. I've seen that more times than I can think about in real life. So anybody who's in some type of leadership or authority position where they're really not sure, do these people respect me, do they love me, or are they just flattering me to try to get something from me? So Solomon had Adonijah initially put on house arrest, but with this new information, he has him killed. Right? And leadership's a funny thing when you get it. We, we can be very critical of leadership. I went through a phase of that. I went through a phase of that, and I've said it from the pulpit before. It's a little embarrassing to talk about, but um, there was times where I was just critical of pastors, and then I became one. And then I wasn't so critical anymore. <laughs> you just don't know until you're walking in somebody's shoes. And let me just say this, too. It just, it just makes me laugh. Um, politics, and I, I, I bust on both sides. But, you know, President Obama, the candidate, well, Obama, the candidate, talked about uh, Bush's overuse of power, overreach, all these kind of things. And here's the funny thing. Six years later, Obama's own base is saying, you're doing the same things that Bush is doing, sometimes more. So he had promised that he was going to undo all the things of the Bush administration, especially when it comes to national security and the NSA. He's actually increased it. So the, the candidate and the president seem like they're two different people. But you get into office and you see, wow, this is, this is difficult. It looked easy. You know, he looked easy driving the car. But then you get in the car and you're like, oh, it's not really so easy anymore. Adonijah as well. Here's a guy who pushes boundaries until something is done. And then almost it's an evoking of sympathy from others when their punishment is finally due. Verse 26. And to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anatoth, to your own fields, for you are worthy of death. But I will not put you to death at this time, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David, and because you were afflicted every time my father was afflicted. So Solomon removed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, that he might fulfill the word of the Lord, which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. So Solomon is merciful to Abiathar. Abiathar was faithful with the Ark of the Lord. He was faithful with David. In a moment of of insanity, Abiathar decides to go against God's anointed. And Solomon can't trust him. But he doesn't want to kill the priest. Uh, He pretty much lets him retire. Go that way and don't get involved in this anymore. And, you know, hopefully when we live our lives and we live a righteous life and we blunder at some point in our lives that People will remember all the things that we did that were pretty good, and uh, they'll show us grace. So it's, um, it's almost like that what, what comes around, what goes around, comes around. Hopefully that if we've lived the majority of our life in a good way, that people will be a little merciful from our little blunders. Well, for Abiathar, it was a big one, but 
Solomon was still merciful. Now check this out, 1 Samuel 2, 31 through 35. This removal of Abiathar and no more of Eli's lines was prophesied in Scripture. And that's the Scripture that speaks about it. 1 Samuel 2, 31 through 35. So this, what Solomon did, was the effective um, realization of the prophecy that God made about Eli's household. Because Abiathar was of that, that line. Verse 28. Then news came to Joab, for Joab had defected to Adonijah, though he had not defected to Absalom. So Joab fled to the tabernacle of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. And King Solomon was told, Joab has fled to the tabernacle of the Lord. There he is by the altar. Then Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go, strike him down. So Benaiah went to the tabernacle of the Lord and said to him, Thus says the king, Come out. And he said, No, but I will die here. And Benaiah brought word back to the king, saying, Thus says Joab, and thus he answered me. And the king said to him, Do as he has said, strike him down and bury him, that you may take away from me and from the house of my father the innocent blood which Joab shed. So the Lord will return his blood on his head because he struck down two men more righteous and better than he and killed them with the sword, Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, the commander of the army of Judah, though my father David did not know it. Their blood shall return upon the head of Joab and upon the head of his descendants forever, but David and his descendants upon his house and his throne there shall be peace forever from the Lord. So Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and struck and killed him, and he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. Then the king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, in his place over the army, and the king put Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. So Adonijah is dead. Abiathar is retired. Abiathar is not dead. Joab flees, right? And eventually he's killed. Why did Joab flee? Abiathar was taken care of. Again, Bible doesn't really tell us all the ins and outs, otherwise this book would be, it would just fill up this room and more of every single little detail. But you can make an inference that Joab was not done trying to get this second coup going. Also, Joab had innocent blood on his hands, and, it, and he didn't want it, it wanted to affect David's bloodline. Verse 31 32, Solomon reminds about the innocent blood, and if Joab was still at it, he would have put the nation in more peril and more innocent blood would have been shed. Now, the last time, if you've been listening on the CD or on the website, 1 Kings 1, I made a little bit of a blunder. I said he went, the last time that they went to the temple and grabbed the horns of the altar. That was anachronistic. The temple wasn't built yet. I meant to say the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was like a pop tent structure with the holy of the holies and all the, the holy and spiritual furniture in it um, and then there was the altar and the horns of the altar. The temple was not built until later on in Solomon's life. He actually builds the structure. So I meant to say tabernacle. Do you forgive me? Thank you. <laughs> so, <laughs> Joab or Jonathan? You know, I, I can't help but go back to Jonathan. I love Jonathan. Um, you know, Joab, was, Joab and Jonathan on the surface both seemed to do the Lord's will. But Jonathan had a different spirit. He had a different heart. And Joab was really a tear growing among the wheat. And Jesus uses that principle when he speaks about the church as well, with the wheat and the tares. Let them grow together. In harvest time, the wheat from the tares will be separated. Sometimes tares look like wheat. As a matter of fact, 
in the early and intermediate stages, these tears can look very much like wheat. They blend in. But eventually the tears are removed and the wheat is preserved. So we want to be wheat. We don't want to be tares. You know, selfish ambition, wrong heart motives. Um, do we really want God for God or do we want God because there's a platform or something we can get out of it? We should want God for God. Verse 36. You know, there's a lot of that today, even in churches. People search churches and they, they shop. Like every month, it's a different church until they find one that ministers to their needs. That's not scriptural. The book of Acts says that everybody came together and they used their spiritual gifts. Today, it's like shopping for a Hyundai or something. Well, I'm going to go to the Hyundai dealer this month and the Chevy dealer that month, take the car for a spin, listen to the stereo. Uh, Alistair Begg. <laughs> The pitfalls and perils of, of long-term ministry, oh, you got to check that out. My wife and I were hysterical listening to him on the CD. He was great. Please shut the phones off. Thank you. Verse 36. It says, Then the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there, and do not go out from there and don't, don't go anywhere. For it shall be on the day that you go out and cross the brook Kidron, know for certain that you will surely die. Your blood will be on your own head. And Shimei said to the king, The saying is good. As my lord the king has said, so your servant will do. So Shimei dwelt in Jerusalem many days. Now it happened at the end of three years that two slaves of Shimei ran away to Achish, the son of Mecha, king of Gath. And they told Shimei, saying, Look, your slaves are in Gath. So Shimei rose, saddled his donkey, and went to Ashish at Gath to seek his slaves. And Shimei went and brought his slaves from Gath. And Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had come back. Then the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you, saying, Know for certain that on the day you go out and travel anywhere you shall surely die? And you said to me, The word I have heard is good. Then why... Have you not kept the oath of the Lord and the commandment that I gave you? The king said, Moreover to Shimei, you know, as your heart acknowledges, all the wickedness that you did to my father David. Therefore the Lord will return your wickedness on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. So the king commanded Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down, and he died. Thus the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. So this is the last few verses. Shimei knew the rules, um, and he could have sent somebody else to do the job, and it was to catch slaves, no less. So can't really feel sorry for this guy. There's this repeated theme. The theme is stubbornness, refusal to change. We see it in Adonijah, Joab, Shimei, and we even talked about this on Sunday morning. Sometimes we bring our own problems on our own heads. Personal responsibility is important, and it's lacking in today's society. So it's something to consider. One thing about Adonijah, Joab, and Abiathar that, um, that brought them or coalesced all three of them was the fact of pride and rebellion. They weren't going to let this young, inexperienced boy king tell them what to do. And the truth is they were right. They did have the experience, but he was also God's anointed. And that was the part that they conveniently dismissed. So Abiathar had spiritual authority over the masses which can, you know, we talked about, we saw this in the religious leaders on Sunday in Mark chapter 12. Joab may, may have been at this point in his late 40s or 50s, I believe he was um, somewhat younger than David, I think he was his nephew, 
And he was also an experienced general in battle. We know he had gray hair, so at some point, you know, he wasn't probably in his 20s. Adonijah was older than Solomon and next in line in age and had the backing of important people. But pride would not allow these guys to humble themselves under the king. And probably they might have even preferred death over submitting to the boy king. And I say that derisively, but almost putting it in their mouths. Not that I believe that. So the conclusion. I want to read something from Warren Wearsby in his book, Be Responsible, on this. I think he sums it up nicely. He said, Solomon was a man of peace, and yet he began his reign by ordering three executions. But true peace must be based on righteousness, not on sentiment. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. The land was polluted by the innocent blood that Joab had shed, and the land could be cleansed only by the execution of the murderer. David didn't execute Joab even after Joab killed Absalom, because David knew that he himself had blood on his own hands. David was guilty of asking Joab to shed Uriah's innocent blood, but Solomon's hands were clean. Solomon was indeed a man of peace, and he achieved that peace by bringing about the righteousness in the land. Solomon was a man of peace, but that peace had to come through strength and leadership. Right? David said to him, be strong, show yourself a man. The country needs you. The country needs a leader. The peace we enjoy in our country comes from blood that was shed by our soldiers that fought for us to be free. The peace we enjoy spiritually came through violence that Jesus experienced on the cross and the blood that he shed for us. Is a theme here. Solomon was tested right out of the gate and he didn't have the luxury to back down from that testing. And there may be a time where there's a test in our lives to bring about peace in our spheres of influence, to stand up and do the right thing, to say that that's not right, even among your peer groups, to exert leadership, but it may come at a price, because it actually always comes at a price. And the price might be when we stand up for something or someone and putting ourselves out there to take a risk, will, be, will we be up to the test when that comes? Remember, there's a, an adage in the scripture, faithful in the little and then faithful in much, but you have to be faithful in a little first. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have Children's Church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.